Our help is in the name of the Lord, Hey, welcome to the Schola Christi. Uh, it's good to be back with you after a little hiatus. I want to think it's only appropriate to thank Father Paul and Deacon Peter for uh, taking so many of the groups here over this past year. It really helped me out a lot, uh, <coughs> needing a little bit more time for family affairs. But uh, So it's good to be back here with you. Uh, this is part of the Secular Oratory uh, groups, educational groups for adults, but within the, the spirituality of St. Philip Neri. And uh, over the first year when we began this group, we wanted to have uh, a Eucharistic focus in particular, since we've been blessed with Eucharistic adoration and has borne such fruit uh, for the Oratorians as well as for those who come here. It seemed appropriate that we would dedicate a lot of time to thinking about our faith, but in particular in light of the Holy Eucharist and the graces, the great graces that we receive through it. And uh, we did take a year uh, that was dedicated to the Papano's birthday of St. Philip Neri to focus on his life and charism, uh, but we're back now to uh, uh, focusing on some of the things that we had in the past. Uh, we always begin with a hymn, and then we have a little reflection tonight from an author um, you'll have to forgive me for the pronunciation, is a Polish priest from the 20th century. His name is Tadusz Daczor. Uh, wrote uh, throughout the 20th century and then died recently in 2009. And most of his latter years were dedicated in particular to uh, fostering adoration and uh, also fostering a Eucharistic life, a life that is centered around the Holy Eucharist in terms of our, our spirituality. So important did he feel that this was for us as Catholic Christians. And so the daughters of St. Philip Neri in particular have been spending a lot of time over the past year or so reflecting upon his readings. Uh, this one struck me in particular because he focuses upon uh, anxiety for the Christian, something that is ubiquitous for us as, as human beings. We all experience it in one way or another, and if I'm ever declared a saint, it would be the patron saint of the paralyzed, anxious <laughs> of the world. Uh, I certainly uh, struggled with that throughout my life, you know, phobias with public speaking and uh, social phobias and things such as that. So uh, I certainly know it as well, and I'm sure everybody, I'm sure this is why the group is so big tonight. <laughs> Maybe if I do one on depression, that would really be bad. But uh, I think you'll find it enriching. I'm not going to uh, approach it from a, a clinical or psychoanalytic perspective. That, that is my training, uh, and has been certainly immensely valuable uh, from my life and work as a priest, but uh, I think... For all of us, we want to look at it in light of the larger and greater paradigm of our faith, how it is that our Christian faith has an impact upon our experience of anxiety, and in particular, how the Eucharist and adoration brings a deep and lasting healing to the mind and the heart. And, and that's in particular why I chose, chose this reading uh, for tonight. Uh, so as we begin, I'd ask you all to stand, and we're going to begin with a hymn, All Ye Who Seek a Comfort Shore. And I'm not all that familiar with the hymn, so we'll let Ren intone it for us. All ye who seek a comfort shore in trouble land. 
For all those who came in, you'll need one of the flowers on the back table. As I mentioned, this reflection that we'll be looking on this, looking at this evening uh, on Christian and anxiety is written by a Polish priest named Tadasz Gotchur. Uh, I think it's probably Thaddeus. Thaddeus would probably be the English uh, pronunciation of the of the name. But I did look it up, so I'm not just m making up the Polish name. <laughs> so it's a, an exquisite reading and reflection on uh, not just how it is that we experience anxiety in our, our lives, but also on Eucharistic adoration. It's one of the finest things I've ever read. In fact, this entire book called Am Amazing Nearness is well worth uh, the time reading and having it in your library. It's just an extraordinary work. Uh, as I said, I'm not going to approach this clinically uh, tonight. Uh, certainly we could do that, and there is definitely uh, a need for those who, who suffer from uh, great anxiety in our world, to have those uh, who help them work through it uh, in one way or another, through talk therapy, behavioral therapy, or uh, even through psychopharmacology, that sometimes anxiety, as you know, can be extremely debilitating. And uh, we would want to be attentive to those who struggle with it. And if we struggle with it or ourselves, we wouldn't want to hesitate I think to seek, seek the help that we would need, the professional help that we would need. But often, uh, when it comes to anxiety, uh, God tends to get pushed out of the picture because one of the qualities of anxiety is to pull us in on ourselves. And so the one who can be the greatest healer for us and the greatest source of strength often is pushed out of view that our anxiety looms so large and is so painful that we're drawn into ourselves trying to find some way to avoid it or get over it. Uh, I remember as a young novice, I'd have to ask somebody to read at every Mass, every daily Mass, because I was terrified. And so it was a huge work every day to run out and find somebody at Heinz Chapel, could you please read at the Mass today? <laughs> and here I was a novice, uh, not able to do it, but every couple times I tried, my blood pressure would go up so much that my vision would become blurred. <laughs> so uh, it took a long time to get over it. And my uh, tried and true method was just uh, to uh, force myself into the, the phobia, which is a painful way of approaching it, uh, to force myself to do it, and uh, even to go through Dale Carnegie. Are you all familiar with that? Yeah. Uh, the public speaking courses. Uh, I remember coming to the oratory saying, God, okay, if this is what you want me to do, uh, then you're going to have to help me. And so I did this 15-week Dale Carnegie where you have to get up in front of 50 other people, some CEOs of companies who have the same fear, the same anxiety of public speaking. But I remember gagging out front of the door <laughs> of the building downtown. It was so, such a fearful thing. So uh, God has been merciful, though, over the years. And I can't say that I have no anxiety. And certainly public speaking, you know, most people would rather die than have to get up in front of a crowd. And uh, I certainly understand that well. Uh, but uh, Freud saw you know, three different sources of or kinds of anxiety. And one would be reality anxiety, that we, we would be threatened by things within our world, 
And because they are so fearful that they would create an anxiety within us, a moral anxiety that there would be certain parental uh, mores, ideals that we would internalize uh, throughout the course of our life and would experience a certain conflict when we come up against things that want to pull us away from those, there would be an inner conflict that we would uh, experience an anxiety through. Or neurotic anxiety, that we have basic, or basic appetites and desires uh, that arise within us, and sometimes these certainly are contrary uh, to moral law as well as uh, human law at times, and that can create uh, an enormous conflict uh, for us. So there, these are the three that he sort of saw, but even Freud saw anxiety as a kind of enigma, that it is ubiquitous, that every human being seems to struggle with it. We can describe it, and there have been many ther theories that have developed throughout uh, the course of the century since uh, Freud lived, uh, but none have really been able to grasp the, the real source of it. There's so many different forms of it, and it's so present and pervasive in our, our lives, uh, it remains a kind of mystery. And to be honest with you, uh, even after studying analysis over all these years, uh, the thing that explains it the most and addresses it in the deepest way is the Christian faith. That I think when we look at our anxiety as human beings, and we look uh, at who it is that we've been created for. We've been created for this intimacy with God. He's created us for himself. And all of our senses as human beings were meant to lead us into a radical communion and union with God. And through the fall, these very things that are essential to who we are as human beings are affected through our, our sin. And so instead of being directed towards God, they are often directed towards ourselves or towards others or towards things in the world in such a way that it creates an enormous anxiety for us. The things that we desire in the world and the things that uh, Satan tempts us to never fulfill what they seem to promise. And their lack of fulfillment is often one of the things that creates an anxiety. For us, And also, when we separate ourselves from God, the one who's created us in love and one who's redeemed us in order that we might know eternal life, we come to fear everything. We become afraid of our own shadows, basically. We fear uh, our own welfare, whether we'll have a job, be able to support ourselves, support our family. If we have someone we love, we worry about losing them. And so anxiety can begin to touch everything of our life rather than the peace of Christ. And it's only by addressing this in a deep way that we begin to have a kind of freedom, even in the face of the chaos that we experience in the world, the violence that we experience, and the hardship that we might endure, whether it's physical violence from someone or maybe we experience a grave illness, that even in the face of these things, we can come to know an invincible peace in and through Christ. And this is what uh, Father Tadius or Tadish captures so well in the readings, so I'd like to jump in with you. I want to treat this as a kind of group Lexio Divina, where we do a kind of prayerful reading 
of the text together, verbatim, it's not that long, and stopping to give you opportunity either to offer comments, <coughs> ask questions, or just to bring up something that's of interest here. Okay? The print in red is just my little introduction to the text itself to give you a sense of where the author is going. Fear has big eyes. It sees everything as a threat and so controls our thoughts and destroys our hopes. In this sense, it becomes an idol. And we have invested with meaning above everything else, including the love that God has for us and what he gives us. As you see in the text, uh, fear has big eyes is an old proverb. It's a Russian proverb, and it just tells us that our fear looms so large that it fills the whole field of our vision. And uh, when we're overcome by it, that's all that we can see. And so it's, it's, it's as if we're looking through glasses, a lens that is anxiety-filled. So everything becomes a threat to us. And the interesting thing that uh, Father Tadish will bring out is that this can make fear a kind of idol for us, uh, an anxiety and uh, an idol for us, uh, because we give it so much attention. It becomes our sole object of focus, either our experience of it and being overcome by it, or our attempts to control it through a plethora of, of, of means. And God, rather than being the object of our thoughts, of our desires, of our hopes, uh, fear becomes the, the thing that we are most focused upon. It directs our thoughts, makes our decisions, and drives our actions. It may slow us down, but not, it is not a holy stillness or silence that allows for an encounter with God and an experience of his grace. So part of the spiritual life is that we would want a kind of stillness or solitude that we can hear God, who most often speaks to us in silence. Uh, it's in silence that God can speak a word to us that is equal to himself. And so slowing our, our lives down, simplifying our lives can be a very important thing, and one might even say essential thing, for the spiritual life. But anxiety slows us down in another way, that because we become so focused upon ourselves, it takes us longer to get through the things that we would normally do uh, in a given day. My primary way of dealing with anxiety was to overwork, overprepare. So it would slow me down in getting through tasks, but that would be the way that I would say, okay, um, I've at least worked like a dog, I'm prepared, and so I'll be able to get up in front of this group, or I'll be able to give this homily, because I've practiced it a thousand times and have it memorized. But you can see how that sort of slows you down, or it can just paralyze us, where we are so debilitated by it that we can't do anything, and so all of our energy that we would either use, that we would use for either things becomes used in containing the anxiety. Uh, when there are certain defenses that we have developed, that we develop in the course of our life to help us deal with things that are overwhelming. And some are sort of healthy. Humor is a good one. 
and some are not so healthy, uh, where we sort of isolate our, ourselves from others or we repress things to such an extent that uh, we become inhibited in our day-to-day -day life or manifest itself in all kinds of, of odd ways that really make us un unhappy. And so it's not the kind, it creates not, not the kind of stillness that we would really want to foster as Christians. He says, rather it paralyzes us, prevents us from reaching out to the one who seeks for us at every moment. Instead of being lifted up by love, we remain earthbound, unable to break free of the moorings of our fears. Our vision becomes warped, and we are prevented from seeing his Eucharistic face. We are everything to him, and yet we minimize the king of the universe. So remaining earthbound, we're called uh, and we are given the ability and the grace to transcend ourselves. We can enter into an intimate relationship with the triune God. And we can do this in and through our prayer. But if we are weighed down by our anxiety, and if all of that energy is consuming us, then our focus isn't going to be where we are. We aren't going to be able to transcend ourselves, but we're going to be constantly focused upon trying to con control the things around us. <coughs> so this was just a little introduction. Any questions before we, we jump into the text itself? Anyone not struggle from anxiety here? I want to see if there's any perfectly well-adjusted individuals. What is that? It's not the Enneagram, but the uh, other one, the INFP or whatever it's called. Myers-Briggs. Are there any X's here? Somebody who's like perfectly introverted and extroverted uh, at the same time. More of us are like the Charlie Brown. Yeah. My anxieties have anxieties. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. It sounds so familiar. <laughs> One of those little sweaters with the jagged like Charlie Brown. Was. Okay, let's move into the text. Any importance given to a person and things reduces God's presence and activity within the soul, writes St. John of the Cross. God wants to protect me from being so deeply wrapped up in people and things that I push him out. Through preoccupation with what he has created, I can effectively cover him up. Now what St. John of the Cross and so many like him are saying is not that we should have a hatred for created things and isolate ourselves from others or see uh, good and beautiful things as ugly or evil. But our anxiety, as I said, can make us become overly focused upon them, that they become objects of preoccupation for us. Uh, a good one would be a, a relationship that, of love. And instead of being, of being one of love and trust, it can be one that fills us with fear and anxiety. And so we can become so preoccupied uh, with controlling that relationship that we even snuff the life out of it because we are, are so controlling. Or we manipulate uh, the person emotionally. Or we seek the position of emotional power within the relationship in such a way that we can control it. And so free ourselves from 
anxiety, from the other person getting the upper hand, and I'm leaving me feeling like I'm a desperate weakling. And uh, so John of the Cross and so many like him tell us that if we, if we lose that focus upon God and lose that love of him above all things and before all things, then very quickly we move to having a distorted preoccupation with the things of the world, not loving them in the way that God would have us love them, but objectifying them, seeing them as absolutely necessary for our happiness within this world. And uh, this is why a lot of people are pretty much miserable in, in this life and in relationships and in their jobs and in their studies because they are invested with so much meaning. We are taught at such an early age that unless you make something of your, yourself in this world, get this good education, unless you find the perfect mate, you are going to be miserable. And so we invest, begin investing all of our energy in the pursuit of these things. Uh, rather than being taught uh, from the earliest years of our life that we are loved by God absolutely, and that it is this love that animates our lives and gives meaning to our lives, come what may. And so whatever loss or failure we might experience in this life will not crush, crush us. Uh, one of the things that in the pre-marriage interview that you ask a couple is that, could you remain married if your spouse was unfaithful? And asking an engaged couple that question <laughs> always creates anxiety because they don't want to think of that I idea. You know, I just, I'm about to get married. Why are you asking me that? And, but the idea is that, you know, not only that forgiveness is something that's essential in a relationship, there are many ways that we are unfaithful to that bond of love or can be unfaithful to it, but, uh, if, if our identity is rooted so solely in that reality, then it can crush us. It can move a person to a mental as well as spiritual breakdown. We can think that God has abandoned us. We can suddenly think that our lives are worthless, that there is no hope in bringing healing to a, a broken relationship or bringing healing to our hearts. It's only when we do have that focus upon God, that we gain a kind of clarity in our vision, uh, of being able to even see the most difficult things of life and to be able to work our way through them, not simply reacting in our anger, in our pain, uh, or, or anxiety, but allowing God to guide us. And if that relationship does end uh, because of infidelity or abuse, that again, we can see our identity as rooted in something far larger than our, ourselves, that we've been created for God, who loves us with an everlasting love. And it is this reality that should not only shape our identity, but guide our thoughts and every decision. You know, I can't, you know, if you don't find a mate, it's not, I'm telling you, it's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> you know, it's not as though a person doesn't experience loneliness, and the single life or the celibate life, but you know there are other joys in life, in life too, friendship and prayer and life in the church. And so, 
you aren't going to keel over, uh, and you're not going to be miserable because you can't find a boyfriend or a husband. So, any thoughts before we move on? Did that come out too harsh? Or? <laughs> Were those examples too personal? <laughs> any thoughts or comments so far on the first paragraph? Okay. My life will always be quite topsy-turvy if I have more regard for people and things than for our Eucharistic Lord. I can get so wrapped up in my possessions that they begin to take over to my detriment. I get so drawn away from God that I can scarcely relate to the Eucharistic one. So we can get so wrapped up in our possessions Again, they become our, can become our idols very easily. And so if something is lost to us or stolen or broken or used by someone, we can go off in a fit of anger. I remember one time I found my records all on the floor and my sister must have been in there making herself at home, you know, yanking them out. And I called up and left like this message, stay out of my... <laughs> it wasn't like yesterday. No, this was when I was a teenager, but still, it's like stay out of my, stay out of my record collection. So you know, we can get to that point, not just over, you know, certainly over big things, but over small things as well. You can see the whole road road rage thing recently, where people are getting out of their cars, beating each other up over you know, traffic infractions, and and uh, so it's. Our, you know, possession of even things that we see as essential to our dignity as human beings. So if somebody gives us the wrong look or says a harsh word to us, we can be filled with anxiety about that and driven, you know, what do they think about me or did I do something wrong or, you know, do they hate me or are they getting sick of me? All these things can be paralyzing. It shouldn't be that easy for, for us to be thrown out of ourselves if we see ourselves as loved by God. I can get so absorbed in my work. It can be like a drug. Workaholics suffer by pushing God out. Results become my spur. In beginning, I'm, and being so attached to them, I marginalize the Eucharist. I don't hand over my concern about the results to him, that is odd, since it is he who determines the outcome. Uh, I had a professor who, he no longer works there, but had worked at uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville. And he uh, said on one level there was this deep faith that the students had, but often it, uh, and they were intelligent, but often the faith hadn't yet matured, and so they would come in and if they got a bad grade or a lower grade on an exam, the next minute you'd see them out in the hallway crying their eyes out over, over that fact. And so we can become so attached to things like this and working towards those goals that when we don't achieve them, we feel like a failure or as if, you know, if we fail one class it's going to shape our whole identity if we don't get that 4.0, 4 or if we don't reach the goals that we think our parents have for us, or 
or that we have for ourselves in terms of our our jobs that uh, you know to experience oneself as unemployed you know can, or if one experiences oneself as uh, what is it when you have to take disability you lose the ability to work that you know certainly work can be a very important part of our identity as human beings and a good, in a good way uh, but if we become overly attached to it and all of a sudden we are stripped of it because of sickness or some disability or losing that job, again, we can fall into deep depression or, or anxiety. Uh, that, you know, what am I going to do now? And will others see me as a failure if I don't succeed on this level? And so again, overcome by anxiety. St. John of the Cross tells us that the more we identify ourselves with things, the more we become subservient to them. I get so wrapped up in my surroundings, I drive God into the outskirts. So we all suffer when the living Eucharistic God actually disappears from my daily life as if he doesn't <coughs> exist at all. So this is the extraordinary thing, that we have the, the most precious gift that we could possess uh, before us in the tabernacle or in the monstrance. That God has given us his only begotten son, that we can experience this radical, personal relationship with him and experience a personal presence in the Eucharist. And rather than treating this as the most precious gift to which we would want to give the most of our time or... Um, that we would want to value the most, we'll often push that out uh, to the, the background, push that out to the margins. You know, as a priest, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people tell me, uh, I can't have a deep prayer life because I'm too busy. And it's an excuse. It's not that people don't get busy. You know, certainly I, I've been busy in my life too, and I, I know what that feels like, and it can feel as though that you're trapped in it. But it also can be a pretty profound excuse that we use not to draw close to that which is most important to us. Not to draw close to God in prayer, but especially not to draw close to Him in the sacraments. You remember the passage in the Gospel where uh, Jesus calls men to follow him, and they all, the gospel writer tells us, begin to make excuses. One just got married, one bought a cow, and I forget what the other one was. I think their parent died. I think it was the other one. And uh, I always loved using this example because the, the meaning of the word excuse is ex causa, free from the charge. And so we can use things in, in such a way that seem very rational to us. And they are. And for this reason, they can become ra reasonable lies. They're reasonable lies. They're true. I'm busy. But who asks the question, why are you so busy? What, where does that need come from that you drive yourself so hard and so relentlessly that you can find no time to spend with your creator. 
and the one who would give you the strength to do the very things in your life if your life is difficult or if you have fallen on hard times or if you are sick you know, what is more important than turning to the living God the Lord of life the Lord of history what is more important than that and yet we will make excuse after excuse as to why we don't want to go there I think part of the reason is the vulnerability of it to come in our vulnerability of being sick or a failure or scared or anxious uh, and to come and sit in the silence of prayer and the presence of God is in a sense to become even more vulnerable. Uh, to make ourselves busy, to become workaholics is a defense mechanism. You know, it is a way of protecting ourselves from reality and it's protecting ourselves from the biggest reality our reality with an R, protecting ourselves from God, that we will distract ourselves with everything that we can rather than expose our hearts, our sinfulness, our brokenness, our need for his love. And that's the most difficult thing to overcome. You know, as a priest, and, you know, I've, I've done it myself. You know, I've gone to my office, walking right past the chapel for years, you know, because I have a talk to prepare or a homily to write, which is the dumbest thing. You know, okay, I'm going to run in my office to write a homily and not talk to the big guy, you know, before <laughs> I do so. And, but, you know, it's, it's the way that we sort of give ourselves a sense of being in control <coughs> and protecting ourselves from that sense of vulnerability. If I work hard at this, then I'm not going to chance getting up in front of this group of people and having nothing come out of my mouth or, or stuttering like a, a boob in front of, you know, 200 people in the chapel. And believe me, for a lot of priests, that's a pretty big fear, you know, to get up and have to preach the gospel. And so, you know, we have to be very careful because our culture values this. And it teaches us it from the beginning. Uh, it's you know, often be called the Protestant work ethic, but I think it's now simply the American work ethic. That, and if you're working 16 hours a day, that's great. You're dedicated, you're invested, you're committed to your job, and you're often valued for it by companies. You know, that most, those who have no life but their company, <laughs> they're going to make money and they're going to be appreciated for it. Uh, I remember reading a little story about Mother Teresa. You can see the cultural difference here. She said, you know, often in India, you'd see people in the middle of the day during the lunch hour go out and they'll sit underneath a tree and they'll be all smiles and laughing and telling jokes and they'll be out there for a couple hours. And she said in the West, that would seem like laziness. But there, it's the most natural thing of all, because it's communion. They break bread, they're companions with each other, but then they extend that companionship by sitting and talking with each other, as if there's nothing more important in the world than entering into that kind of communion with the other. We would never think about thing, such a thing. In fact, we'll more often than not would eat at our desk either not eat or eat at our desk while we're working. So unless you have one hand on the computer keyboard and eating your sandwich, you're not doing your job. Uh, and that can be true in the church 
as well. You know, you would think well, we would get it, that we would understand that more, but sometimes we can be uh, as driven or not more driven because we add religion behind that, that you're being dedicated to God if you drive yourself relentlessly and you don't sleep. And that can be a very dangerous thing when you know religion itself becomes the excuse for avoiding God and avoiding prayer. Any thoughts or comments? I feel like I've been talking yes. Um, I'm probably a good bit older than most of the people in this room. Um, but when we... I don't know, I see a few around here. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, when I was young and growing up, and um, I got a very good Catholic education all the way through, but somehow we were given the impression that if you just did what you were supposed to do and you worked hard and you, you know, you were a good girl, and, um, that, every, that everything would work out. And then only as you become an adult do you realize you can do all of those things and still have a lot of challenges in your life. And still fail. You can do everything yeah. right and still fail. And so I'm wondering if maybe we were too young to deal with it at the time, but if there had been a little more balance of talking about the cross, you know, the suffering of life, the challenges of life, the unexpected things that you're going to have to deal with, that perhaps, and you know, if, if I'll just take myself and I'll maybe think that a lot of other people kind of had this same impression growing up, that maybe if we'd had that balance, there wouldn't be that tendency of if I just work another extra hour or if I you know, do seven more things or whatever. Um, right. Well, I think it partly could be that, the spiritual aspect, you know, <coughs> not having sort of a balanced view of uh, what our, our spirituality is and focusing maybe so much on the suffering but not on the love and the, the mercy of God and the communion His desire, he, the, he, that he desires that, uh, with us and the desire that he has for our love. Uh, but I think in some ways we've been formed by our culture, too. There was a time, you know, where Catholics were uh, not looked upon very well in our country. And so there was this sense of needing to work oneself into the culture, you know, to become like others, to fit in, uh, as it were, you know, to make your way up within society. And I think it was presented even spiritually that... This would be a way to have an impact upon the culture as Catholics would become more educated, enter into the professional field. They could have then this kind of influence <coughs> over the culture. And I think there was something lost there that uh, instead of having a distinctive <coughs> identity that reveals to others why we are Christian, that we aren't like everybody else, that we went in this opposite direction of trying to make ourselves like everybody else to fit, to fit in. And, uh, and in doing that, we made that Protestant work ethic, which is rooted in a kind of Puritanism too, that we made it our own and became as <coughs> driven as everyone else. And we could use then uh, the cross as a means of bolstering that up take up your cross daily and follow me. 
And, you know, St. Philip Neri said, we're often the carpenter of our own crosses. And so <laughs> to take up our cross daily, we could do that. We could make our lives miserable, overwork, and uh, to the point of ignoring God, making our lives miserable and anxiety-filled, uh, and spiritualize it uh, when it might not have anything to do with God or what God is calling us to do. And that's where we get back to the question, you know, when somebody's busy, you know, they're often praised, and nobody stops and asks, why is he, or why is she so busy? You know, and what is going on there that would, you know, perhaps make that an excessive reality for them? So, yeah, I think there are a lot of different ways that our, our spirituality could become unbalanced and have an impact upon this, and, and strengthen that anxiety rather than being something that relieves it. We're commanded by the Lord to have no anxiety about anything at all, which is an extraordinary thing to think that we are commanded as Christian men and women not to have anxiety. And you could tell a person who's anxious that over and over again, and they're still going to be anxious. But, you know, why, why is the Lord saying that? And why, and uh, others, you know, Paul, said similar things. Uh, you know, why, why could that be said? You know, was it a pious thought or an idea? Or was this kind of freedom being held out to us that comes through life in Christ? Where we begin to experience something of the invincible peace of the kingdom dwelling within our hearts. And that's what we're called to. And that's why adoration is such a powerful thing to be sitting in and immersed in the peace of Christ. And to do that for long periods of time is going to shape our minds and our hearts in such a way that it can affect everyone around us. That's why I think adoration has been such a powerful reality here and stabilizing reality here at the oratory, let alone being a, a source of vocations and... and, and uh, and growth of a ministry, I think more than anything, it's brought peace of mind and heart to many suffering souls. I've had a, I had a priest said, when we made that jump to perpetual adoration, he says, you're going to find a whole new group of people who start coming to the oratory. And they aren't going to be the most well-adjusted characters. You're going to draw a lot of people who are drawn to Christ and who are looking for healing. And so you're going to draw a lot of people who have serious problems of one form or another, physical illness or loss of job, you know, broken families or psychological problems. And they're not coming here because we're talented and, you know, that we can work some magic. They're drawn here because of Christ. And the place that they're immediately drawn is the chapel. If it's non-Catholics, go into the chapel who have an immediate experience of the presence of something extraordinary there. And come there, think about it, a, a Protestant coming to adoration regularly because they find peace in the chapel. They don't even need to understand it to experience the, the power of it. And this is what uh, the author is going to begin developing here for us through the rest of the text. Okay, can we move on or any other? Okay.
So, fear has big eyes, according to the proverb. What I fear can grow enormously, engulfing me, so that both the world and our Eucharistic Redeemer cease to matter in these moments. Yet he is in the Eucharist for me and the world. Fear alone exists, and that becomes like an idol for me. And my attitude to an idol can either be that of adoring love or fearful rejection. So we can either hate or love the thing that we're focused upon, but nonetheless it, it gains all of our attention. The Lord is, is pushed out to the margins of our, of our lives. The more I marginalize God, the more I suffer from fear and haste. It is not just that I need to slow down. Slowing down can still be haste if I'm continually earthbound. Real lack of haste is silence within me and involves searching for fulfillment in Eucharistic love. If I'm just thirsting for exclusively earthly love, acting very slowly goes on impeding God's grace, allowing my life to be centered on the one who daily comes onto our altars is the only way to save men from the deprivation of anxiety, sadness, and feverish activity. Think about that. It's, you can memorize that paragraph and it would be worth the time. That simply slowing ourselves down isn't the essential thing. We can do that in, in many different ways, and yet our life can be just as unfulfilling and anxiety can still cover us. And can, our life can still be as, as empty of the Lord as ever. And if that is the source of our anxiety, if our separation from him and his love is the source of, of an existential anxiety, no matter what we do in this life, there are a lot of Eastern religions and meditation practices and everything that have, seem to have a lot in common with the Catholic spiritual tradition. But in and of themselves, they are not going to do for us what is promised to us by Christ. You know, a Buddhist might experience a kind of natural peace of mind, you know, empty his mind and his heart of thoughts, and so enter into a kind of, what is it that they call it? Is it nirvana or not? Uh, yeah. Nirvana. Is yes. Right. Is that right? Is that Buddhist? Yeah, but that actually means nothingness. Nothingness. Yeah, but you finally get to die. Right. But it's that's pretty much akin to like Freud's death drive. That that's our other way of getting to peace and fulfillment is dying and destroying ourselves. And you know, again, I think that's a kind of you know not to be harsh here, but I think that can be a kind of defense mechanism. I will free myself and my mind from everything, move into a kind of state of nothingness, and then be, experience a kind of freedom from anxiety. But that's not what we're called to. You know, Christianity, for us, is always radically personal. We're being drawn into a personal relationship with the triune God. And so when we engage in these practices of meditation, when we, we enter into silence, it's to enter into the silence of encounter, an encounter with perfect love, an encounter with perfect peace and mercy. And this is where the freedom from anxiety comes from. We might be able to create the illusion of it, mimic it in other ways, but to experience it in all of its fullness or in the way that the saints 
experienced it is only in and through Christ. There's uh, an Eastern saint, and I've mentioned it in other groups, named Saint Seraphim of Seraph, who said, you know, the person who comes to experience within himself the peace of Christ will save, will uh, convert thousands. That one who has truly come to experience that invincible peace simply through his being will make that peace present to others and so bring about conversion in their life. And, you know, I think the way that we enter into the, the new evangelization, we can create multiple programs. We can get out there, work hard. We're going to convert others. And, you know, through educating them, having these programs, and neglect the one thing that would really be tr transformative of our culture, which doesn't require this frenetic activity and is often impeded by the frenetic activity. If we were to enter into this relationship with Christ in a deep way, that's the thing that's going to be transformative. It's because we've ne neglected that relationship and neglected the interior life that what people see now is mediocrity. These people aren't any different than I am. They do all the same things that I do and pursue all the same things that I do. What makes them any different? So people can't see it and they certainly can't experience it from us because often Christ isn't in our hearts. Any thoughts about this particular Paragraph. Yes. Um, as someone who in the past had a really difficult time with anxiety to the point where I actually sought out professional help for it, it's what you said about the tranquility, that being what would convert a thousand people. From the first from my own perspective, entering into the same relationships that I have with other people, for instance, particularly difficult people, entering into that relationship after having discovered these ways of keeping myself at peace, it's night and day. And it's night and day from the perspective of I didn't change this other person from the perspective of if they're mm -hmm. causing me difficulty or mm -hmm. if they're whatever, saying hateful things or whatever. Um, it's more that I can be present to the fact that they're being, that this negativity is being sent my way, but I know that it doesn't have, it doesn't have to have an effect on me. Right. In other words, it, it, I would describe it as almost like a shield. You know, the, the reality is still there and it's still present to me, but it doesn't have to disturb me any longer. And it's, it, it is like night and day. And it's, it's very hard to describe if you can, like, for, because for the longest time I never understood what that meant to be at peace. Well, I think this is why I prefaced the group with saying that, you know, there are times where anxiety can get so debilitating that it almost becomes impossible to function. Mm -hmm. And so there can be a, a need to address it therapeutically as well as medically. 
problem is, is that we don't begin with the spiritual life too, and have that be sh have that work be shaped by that relationship with Christ. But nonetheless, to get back to the the, the therapy, that you know, all those things can give people uh, uh, means to uh, deal with the reality of their anxiety, to understand it, uh, to deal with their core ideas and thoughts in such a way, uh, engage in certain behaviors that alleviate that anxiety. Uh, but it's interesting that you use the image of like a shield and like a cognitive behavioral uh, therapy can do something like that. It's, it's extremely effective and it often teaches people to do exactly you know, what you talked about and what I was mentioning here, you know, we can deal with those things that contribute to the anxiety. And it, what the cognitive behavioral therapy does is strengthen our defenses, that we're able to deal with those external realities in a more fruitful way. There are defenses that are, as I mentioned early on, that are good and more fruitful and some that are aren't so good and cost a person an awful lot. And so the cognitive behavioral therapy in particular can help people develop certain defenses that are more fruitful for them. So they can function better in the world, they can work, they can enter into relationships, love, give themselves and love. And so I don't think we would want to demean that in any way or dim diminish the value of that. Analytic, psychoanalytic approach is actually moving in the opposite direction. I think this is why I was attracted to it. It's because it's not uh, uh, working on this intellectual level, but rather on the emotional. And it's not seeking to strengthen those defenses, but rather to lessen, lower the defenses in order that the cause of that anxiety might be unearthed. And it's a very difficult thing to do because it actually creates more tension and anxiety for you. And so when you lower your defenses, you're going to be hurting. And, but there was a kind of, there was something that was akin to uh, the spiritual tradition and what I found in the Desert Fathers, you know, this revealing of thoughts. You know, Freud wasn't the first to come up with the idea of free association. You know, the desert monks were revealing every single thought that they had to their spiritual elder. And in this began to understand the, inter the workings of the interior life, how the human mind and heart worked, how the passions affected them, and the means to address them. Uh, so I have no problem with secular psychological practices and certainly the use of medicine too. I mean some people's lives have changed radically, dramatically by being able to take an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. But the reality is, is that psychotherapy changes brain chemistry too. As much as taking a medication Exercise changes brain chemistry. And if we think about the lives of the saints, and if you think about entering into the most significant relationship of our life, entering into a relationship with Christ, entering into this invincible peace, and having our, our life 
be shaped by that reality, it's not only going to change brain chemistry for us, but it's going to transform uh, us in every way. We move, as Paul says, from glory to glory, to the point that we, you know, are to become the image of God. Uh, within the world, as well as to participate in the future in the fullness of that life. And there's a story of one of the Desert Fathers where a young monk is telling him, you know, I've worked hard, I've been you know, gained control of all my, my passions, and, uh, you know, I keep the commandments, you know, what else can I do? And this holy old monk holds up his hands and his fingertips become like lanterns of fire. And he says to the young monk, why not become fire? And so th this is the difference for us. You know, it's, we're not seeking s simply human fulfillment, fulfillment within this life or freedom within this life. We are seeking to experience a participation in the fullness of life who's God. And so when that monk says, why not become fire? Why not become all flame? Why not be transformed in your very being to share in the life of God. That's what we are called to. And the kind of invincible faith, invincible virtue, invincible peace that can come to us is far more than we can imagine. The great saints have a hard time writing about it because sometimes it's beyond what words can capture. Or St. John of the Cross will write about it in term, in, with poetry that somehow, you know, can capture an image of it for us. So I think this is where, you know, Hans Urson von Balthasar, a, a theologian from the last century, he, uh, he described, and I think this is rather harsh, so don't, don't go out and say, Father David said this. <laughs> <laughs> but he wrote a book called The Christian and Anxiety. Extraordinary little reflection on it. And there's a lot of it that I agree with. The only anxiety that we are allowed to participate in is the anxiety of the cross. We can share in the affliction of Christ, you know, as we bear the burden of our own sin and the sins of others and make reparation for that. But he referred to secular psychotherapy as a poisonous antidote. That we enter into it looking sometimes for our salvation. And so we can jump around from one thing to another one therapeutic thing to another, seeking the magic pill or the magic therapy or the, you know, or the magic kind of natural uh, alternative therapy to uh, change the way that we feel about our, ourselves. And I don't want to say this in a critical way, and I think, again, that he's overstating things and calling it a poisonous antidote. But I think you can understand why he would, because if that is what we're seeking, and you have to you have to see it that our culture we moved from men and women of faith to therapeutic man, to therapeutic woman, and so we moved to a position where we're seeking health and wholeness, not in our relationship with Christ, but within what we have created with our own hands. Psychotherapy means healing of soul. You know, we've come to see it as meaning the healing of the mind. 
but the original meaning of the word is far more broad and encapsulates far more. That it's the whole person that we seek healing for. And you know, the, our Christian faith in entering into the spiritual life is a Christian psychotherapy. It's a healing of the soul. We enter into this relationship with Christ. We receive the sacraments in order that our souls might be healed by the grace of God. And I think this is what we've lost sight of. So, you know, poisonous antidote may be too strong, but I think for many that's true because it then prevents them from clinging to Christ and from turning to him in a way that really would be transformative. In other words, it's the same problem all over again. Right, yeah, they just they become trapped in this cycle, and the anxiety can still be there, better controlled and managed, which is a good thing, but not, it's not the freedom of Christ and of the sons and daughters of God to which we've been called. And that's, that's where it's lacking and where we have to be careful. So, good question. I mean, I'm glad we got to that because uh, I don't like, you know, certainly studying all these years, I don't want to set it aside and say it's worthless or a poisonous antidote, but I think we have to acknowledge the limitations of it and draw people to what is going to bring them full healing. And so, you know, making some psychological gains through therapy might actually give them a greater freedom to love God. The two can go hand in hand. Give them a greater confidence in opening their mind and their heart up to engage in that, that most intimate of relationships. Any other comments? Yes? Have tests been done on people with Eucharistic adoration to see what effect it has on their brain chemistry? Well, I know that there have been studies done on prayer and healing, which has shown that prayer does assist in healing. And there have been some studies on those who pray the Jesus prayer. And uh, it's a, the Eastern repetition of Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That that likewise has been extremely healing. For individuals, but there are limited studies at this point. I, you know, I don't think I need a study to convince me about that at this point. But all right, let's move on. Where are we at? I'm sorry. I may declare. Okay, I may declare. I best find God in nature. Yet it is by no means certain I am looking for God in this pastime. It is true that trees are God's gift, yet I can get into a trap if I focus more on them than on God. They blur my vision, drowning me in the forest by diverting my focus away from the pursuit of amazing Eucharistic love. I need to avoid making love of nature my final goal. The great and beautiful forest can conceal my Eucharistic hidden God who is always longing and searching for me. This is like the perfect argument for those who tell you, I don't need to go to Mass on Sunday. I can commune with God by going out in my garden or for a walk in the woods. You know, it's, we can experience God in creation, but to compare that to the intimacy and the personal presence that we experience in the Eucharist is foolhardy. And again, it's being used as an excuse 
you know, not to invest oneself in that relationship in such in a way in in a way that requires that we humble ourselves. You know, we want often to set our own time for prayer, and that's always a dangerous thing to do. I'm in control of things. I'll pray when I feel inspired. So we become the one who dictates when we pray, not God calling us to prayer and our responding to that, or the church calling us to prayer and our responding to that. But I'm going to go out, maybe after I have lunch, and take a walk in the woods and there commune with God. And Tadish says, no, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not the way that we think as those who have a sacramental worldview who believe in incarnation and that the incarnation has radically transformed the way that we experience God. Where am I going? Should I not change direction? After all, if I've received the grace to believe in the creator, not just of trees and animals, but also of galaxies rushing into infinity, then I may get engrossed in his love. It may happen that as I look at the star-filled sky, I will simply pray. I may not be asking for anything, but I will be adoring God. Humbly looking in faith includes adoration. Maybe I will be led on beyond the lit-up sky to see my own smallness in contrast to the greatness of the only one. Maybe I will not just stay in this thought, but go on to embrace the inner core of it. Maybe I will hold on to God's greatness and his very personal supportive power and love. After all, these great things are not just there for me to look at with powerful telescopes. The wonders of the universe are an invitation to draw close to him in adoring amazement. Everything created should impel me toward incomprehensible love. So he's sort of repeating himself here, but he's saying that all these maybes, these things might lead us to step out of ourselves, to transcend ourselves, and enter into this radical communion with God. But we don't need to ask maybe, or say maybe, when it comes to the Eucharist. God has given himself to us in this amazing, extraordinary way as our food and drink. We enter into a radical communion with him. We don't have to question that, and it's not affected by the way we feel, or if we're distracted, or if we're sick. We enter into that radical communion no matter what. And this is, I think, what we're, we're losing sight of. Okay, we're going to move on just because we're a little pressed for time. My prayer of adoration should always more or less lead me to God's amazing reality. It is he who is adored in the Eucharist. It is he who is worshipped by choirs of angels. God is always so amazing However, we need discerning eyes of faith with worshiping hearts inspired by his superabundant miracles. These point to his never-ending love for me. He wants to give me unending opportunities. He wants me to respond at least to some of this truth. He wants me to worship the Eucharist maybe in the words, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. He superabundantly reveals his glory to inspire me to some adoration of the real master of the universe. On the Eucharistic altar, he always reigns supreme. I still minimize the king of the universe. 
In my everyday life, I undervalue the Eucharistic one. Yet my participation in the Mass is a vital part of my life. I frequently ask how it is that I don't make the Infinite One more important, especially on account of His miraculous, incomprehensible Eucharistic love. Why don't I change in a radical way? I'm everything to Him. I am the one who is unique to Him. He just wants me to share in His eternal glory. So always the greatest questions. Who, who am I? Why don't I experience this? The questions that we put to our, ourselves as to why we aren't being transformed radically in and through our relationship with Christ. St. Francis of Assisi would ask that question all the time. Who am I, O God? Who are you, O God? Daily, he would ask that question. And it would, that would be almost the perfect prayer within uh, adoration. Who, who am I? Who are you? That you would come to me in this way and seek to give your love to me in this, in this fashion. You know, I am who I'm so unworthy of it. How is it that I can possibly draw so close to God and gaze upon him, have him gaze upon me and have no doubt in my mind about his presence? And when we begin to ask those questions, and more importantly, I think when we begin to linger long in his presence is when we begin to experience that invincible peace. There are times where we have to force ourselves to prayer. Don't wait till you feel inspired to do it. You have to, to make a commitment. And there are going to be days when you don't want to do it, where you're lazy, where you're negligent, where you're feeling sick, or when you're feeling pressed by work or study. And nonetheless, for love's sake, you have to force yourself, for your own sake, force yourself, in order that you can begin to taste something of the peace and the freedom from anxiety that we talked about tonight. Any final comments or thoughts? Yes? How does one handle the situation where uh, the very act of returning to prayer is a source of anxiety? By that I mean if one is struggling consistently, daily, hourly, with faith itself, and that is what has driven one out of an active prayer life, the, re the very act of returning to prayer can be a source of anxiety because instead of being in the moment sharing with the personhood of Christ, one might be completely focused on, is what I'm doing foolishness? You know, Is this going to be meaningful? Is this going to change anything? Am I wasting my time? You, know, you see how it can almost yeah. be a, a feedback loop because then the less you do that, the more you fall away, the more you doubt. And, uh, yeah, I think to seek out counsel. You know, we don't take that journey alone. You know, if we do so, we put ourselves in greater jeopardy, where we try to uh, engage the mysteries of our own life. And to do so blindly, I think we look to the wisdom of the church, its spiritual tradition, and to those who have an experiential knowledge. Uh, perhaps the very thing that we struggle with, you know, or that we might be able to find our way through it. You know, the the passions are uh, illness of the soul, and you know, 
anxiety or fear insofar as one might describe them as passions that you know they need to have applied to them the spiritual medicine that comes to us from the tradition so having someone who can diagnose as it were the source of that anxiety with you on a spiritual level and look at your spiritual life with you to talk to you about your views with God to guide you into prayer in such a way that you can feel more vulnerable even in the face of that anxiety I think is what you would want to do I think we live in this culture that is strangely open to sharing every intimate reality about ourselves and you know our relationship with God is such a precious thing that it's not meant to be shared on the internet you know don't don't go to confession on Facebook. So right. And you know, so there is I think you want I think you want to protect that relationship in the same way that one would protect the most intimate realities of one's relationship with one's spouse. But there's something so intimate and beautiful about this that we don't you know, lay it out on the table for everyone to gaze upon. You know, because ev not everyone who gazes upon that is going to look at it with a sympathizing eye or give the counsel that is really needed. You know, we live in a culture that mocks Christianity and faith and the sacramental life. And, and so I think something so precious and uh, uh, so intimate to you is something that you would want to talk about privately. That you know that we have this long tradition of spiritual guidance and direction, and we have more access now to the great spiritual masters than we've ever had before. And it's not the quantity of stuff that you would read, you know, it's rather the quality and the same thing with the quality of, of guidance. So that would be my answer in brief. Any other thoughts? Paul. Father Paul. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this question more, but um, yeah. Speak up, soldier. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> say it like you. Well, I, guess I, I can't say that. <laughs> uh, a couple things. Like, this thing is the questions he asked at the end, at least for me, kind of um, matched up with the idea of um, like turning things, like anything or even people into like idols and how like even like in relationships we can actually snuff out the relationship because we're so anxious about not letting it die that we actually kill it. Right. And that um and that the it seems like it seems like the res proper response to that is to bring that idol to the Lord who actually is God. But from the position of the person who's you know, in some way at, at, at some point or some on some level intentionally made an idol of a thing or a person or so, whatever right. in his life and then just has difficulty believing that like um, uh, I am everything to him I am the one who is unique to him because they're so like you said like fear has such big eyes it becomes such a focus that I need to not let whatever this is get ruined right. even if it means like and then it seems like I'm not getting from God what I want to get from whatever the idol I've made. 
What is like a good way of, kind of I don't know, making the act of faith or, or trust so that I can actually say, I, I see that this is an idol. I see that like what I need is God. How do I move from, since my concern is like not letting this thing die, even though I'm going to keep, you know. Yeah, I have I a couple know. thoughts. And one is the, the gospel story where the man is sick and the crowds are surrounding Jesus and they bring him to Christ and they take him up on the roof and they rip open the roof and they drop him down into the midst of Christ and the disciples <coughs> and Christ heals him and he heals him because of the faith of his friends and you know so often as a priest people who are suffering with the things that you describe or have those, those questions or suffer in that way are often brought to the adoration or brought to mass or, or encouraged to come to and talk to a priest by a friend. And this is where we wouldn't want to be shy about experience, you know, speaking of our experience of uh, the beauty of the sacramental life or, or just the peace of the Eucharist or just asking somebody, would you want to come for five minutes with me to the chapel that's often been enough for some, some people or to encourage them to go to confession can be that place where they make that turn in their life that moment when they are able to turn away from the things that frustrate and begin that healing process and the other way I think is for uh, our churches to be open and for the Eucharist to be exposed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And for priests to be in the confessional as much as they possibly can. And for people to see priests before the Blessed Sacrament praying. That these, it's through imitation often. You know, children imitate their parents in the faith. And it's imitation in what we see in others that perhaps have come to know healing that we would be able to make, again, that movement to where we need to be to find healing in our own life. There was a document that came out, and I've talked about this before, in 2007 from the Congregation for Clergy, and he wrote every single bishop throughout the world, uh, beseeching them, saying, you know, open uh, places of Eucharistic adoration, chapels of perpetual adoration, in every diocese in multiple places, foster that 24-7 adoration, and, uh, and, you know, it went into the dustbin because there's something that's maybe too simple about that, or, or maybe there was something so powerful about it that it was attacked in this very subtle way. You know, all that stuff that was done in the past, you know, that's a relic of pre-Vatican II, Eucharistic adoration, and then is tossed in the garbage, you know, not given a, a second thought. You know, uh, having priests be able to be priests and be in the confessional is the other way for, you know, for that turn to begin to take place too. I mean, you know, sometimes you sit there uh, trying to stay awake in that little box that is hot or cold, you know, waiting for people to come. But the more times that we offer, the more people come and to be able to experience the healing grace of Christ. And so, you know, I think most of our churches are locked during the day. 
people who would even want to get in can't get in, or they can't get to talk to a priest. You know, so until that changes, you know, how, how are they to experience a personal encounter or hope for healing or see a glimmer of light when they can't bring themselves to it? Yes. Uh, so there's a more kind of a practical side. So uh, whenever there are these like kind of deadlines coming up for either study or, or for work, um, and it seems like that in a certain sense, like we are called to fulfill our, our like duties well in school and jobs and, and like in the family life, things like that. Um, it's kind of like, what should we do in that? There's like a real kind of like even busyness that we can't really uh, right. avoid. Um, you know, kind of how do we go about that to either get things done or to not not, but like with the right mindset yeah. and to still do our duty. Uh, not give into the temptation of that. Uh, I know that's hard, and people give me the hairy eyeball, the stink eye, whenever I <laughs> say that. Uh, but. Not to give into the temptation of it. If we believe that the Lord is the source of our ability to do the things that He's called us to do, then neglecting that relationship is not the place to find strength and peace of mind to do it. The people that I know that are able to uh, do the greatest work are the also the deepest prayers. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, you know, every single day mass. And adoration, knowing that, you know, how am I going to lift people out of the gutter, you know, unless I'm doing this by the strength and the grace of God. And so not to give yourself over to that, that temptation, but always to, to make that, that time and not to elevate that, whatever it is, an exam or a paper above that relationship with Christ. And, you know, if we develop that kind of purity of heart that comes from living the Christian life fully. And if we are living uh, close to the heart of Christ and we begin to experience that peace, then the clarity, the discernment that we are going to develop over time is going to deepen. And so often, you know, those who have that clarity of vision are going to be able to get through that work in a shorter amount of time than those who are riddled by anxiety you know, because they aren't going to be driven by fear and anxiety, they're going to be driven by love. They might work even harder, but they get through the work more quickly because they aren't using all of their energy to contain their anxiety or their fear about getting a bad grade on it. So something might get done quicker by having that clarity of sense and purpose in one's life. It's an, it's an illusion and it's a temptation to give into that. And that's one of the harder, as we said earlier, that's one of the hardest things to overcome in our culture. And it's one of the strongest excuses to use against prayer. You know? Students come to pray during finals period. You know, <laughs> they might not spend a long time, but they're... Yes. When, when I was in the same situation in college, a, a priest, a very wise priest, he put it in such a simple perspective. He said, stop 
looking at the mountain. You're never going to climb it. Look at the next ledge. Focus and pray about that, and then just go to the next ledge. And, then it, and, it, and it works, because that's what we do. We think of, how can I get all this done? Don't worry about that. Worry about what you need to do right now. The first thing. And pray about it and do it. Yeah, if I were to add one thing to that, it would be just to keep your focus on Christ. You know, that's where praying something like the Jesus prayer, unceasing prayer, even in the midst of your work and study, is the, the thing that maintains that peace. You know, because your focus is always returning back to Him, you know, the source of your, your strength and grace, and the one who's also given you that task. And so it almost becomes impossible to become anxious in it. I also think that the reality of the relationship there with Christ and the faithfulness to it and the dedication to that, I mean, it, it forms and informs and shapes the rest of your day in such a way that you really don't find yourself in the same kinds of crunches that you used to before. Like in college, I mean, I, I had, you know, four months to write my senior thesis and I wrote it in two days. You know, uh, the whole thing in two days of just like, and, you know, I had four months, you know. But, but my life wasn't, there wasn't an order. There wasn't a clarity to it. It was like pulled in a thousand different directions because this lack of singleness of heart and of purity of heart and of understanding what was the right thing meant like this group of friends was doing that and like oh I really don't want to miss that and then this group of friends was doing that and I didn't want to miss that either and I was pulled by so many conflicting desires and and just at a loss as to what the whole point of my life was that I was doing all these other stupid yeah. things and That's then I mean it was most I think we go yeah. to college far too soon <laughs> we waste our parents' money <laughs> for at least two or three years, and then we wake up and think, oh my gosh, I have a job. I'm going to have to have a job in a couple of years. I'd like to start <laughs> so uh, when we close there, it's a little, we're running a little over time, but there are uh, sweets and coffee for after group if, you wanna, if you're able to stay and uh, chit-chat for a little bit. Okay, so while we stand together, and we'll say the prayer to St. Philip Mary, and then close with the hymn. And together, let us pray. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea, and now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit the most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee, then, we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, rule thine army fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives, steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that we, for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, Thanks be to God.
Thank you, Father.